0: He was the proudest, most disagreeable man in the world, and everybody hoped he would never come there again. This is the first description we find of a man named Darcy in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. And of course, the character Elizabeth's first encounter as she's looking for a husband with Darcy is not all that promising. In fact, Darcy comes across as rather a jerk. And Darcy, she, Elizabeth later learns and her disdain grows because she, she's informed that Darcy cheated another man out of an inheritance. But as the story goes on, for those of you who are aware, spoiler alert, Elizabeth's attitude begins to change toward Darcy. She begins to reconsider As Elizabeth begins to reconsider how she feels about Darcy, she visits his home in Pemberley. And it's there where she comes across one of Darcy's servants. And she's shocked when the housekeeper, Mrs. Reynolds, says, speaking of Darcy, he is one of the kindest masters. I've never heard a crossword from him in my life. And it's at this point in the story where we see things really begin to change. Now, Darcy wasn't perfect, right? But Elizabeth begins to realize she hastily judged Darcy. She was wrong. And as she began to understand who Darcy really was, kind, compassionate, generous, it changed her life. And you can see how it changed her life if you read the book. What is Jesus like? What have you heard about him? Of course, there are many conceptions out there and ideas of who Jesus is and what he is like. For many of us, he is Lord and Savior. For many, he seems crazy, maybe insane. Well, our passage today is surrounded by all kinds of ideas and questions and assumptions about who Jesus is. Some consider him to be insane, and we see others worshiping as divine, as God himself. But if you're listening to this this morning, and maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian, I pray that you would reconsider Because we're actually going to spend some time with someone who knew Jesus, even when the crowds weren't around. Of course, I'm speaking of his early follower, John, which we'll be reading from his gospel today. And just like whenever Elizabeth was around Darcy's servants, she learned who Jesus really is. And so if we want to learn about who Jesus really is, what he is really like, let's look at somebody who actually knew him, who actually walked with him, who saw him die so i pray that any misconceptions that are out there maybe even any flat-out lies that you may have heard about jesus you'd reconsider and you would be and you truly understand who jesus is and maybe most of us here i assume would at least claim to be followers of jesus but we know that we're not exempt from misconceptions about jesus right so I pray that we too would have a more holistic picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. So if you have your copy of God's word, please turn to the gospel of John in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And as you're turning there, let me fill you in what was going, in, going on in chapter 9 because it's really crucial for us to understand what was happening in chapter 9 in order to understand what's going on in chapter 10. In chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. Yes, you heard that correct. Jesus actually gave sight to a man who was born blind. It's it's miraculous. But all doesn't exactly go well after Jesus does this. I mean, it happens on the Sabbath. The Pharisees, who were the religious leaders at the day, are very upset that Jesus healed this man, especially on the Sabbath. But in reality, they're not all that concerned about keeping the Sabbath. They don't like Jesus. The Pharisees want rid of Jesus. And the chapter ends with the Pharisees trying to get this blind man to, to call Jesus a sinner. And the blind man's like, look, I, I don't know what, who this man is. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. At the end of the chapter, this man who was once blind is worshiping Jesus interestingly, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they ask him, Are we blind? Can we see? Jesus continues to respond in John chapter 10. Let's begin by reading John 10, verses 1 through 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Father, would you help us today as we look at your word, help us to know who Jesus is. Would you clear up any misconceptions that we may have, whether on purpose or on accident, so that we too may worship Jesus and know the life that he gives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You see what's, what's going on in the beginning of chapter 10. It's as if Jesus is saying, truly, truly, you Pharisees. He's saying, you don't shepherd the flock. You don't lead the flock of God's people like your position says you do. And this is rich with Old Testament imagery that we'll see about. And we see down in verse 16 that eventually, as we'll talk about later, Jesus has other sheep that are not of this fold. And so he's clearly talking to the people of Israel, those who were God's people, those who received the promises, the covenants, the nation by whom God would create a new world, a new heavens. And Jesus is saying, you, leaders of these people, you're supposed to be shepherding God's people, but you're actually stealing from them. You're thieves, you're robbers. You take what isn't yours. Notice they're climbing in. They're thieves, they're robbers. You weren't let in by the gatekeeper. But Jesus informs them in these early verses. But when the shepherd comes, the true shepherd, he will call his sheep by name. It's personal to this shepherd. And they will hear his voice and they will follow him. Now, maybe helpful for us to know what's going on. If you're anything like me, you don't know that much about sheep and shepherds and sheep pens and sheep folds other than sheep don't get a bad sheep get a bad rep, right? Sheep are dumb. That's usually what we hear about sheep. But let me fill you in on what's going on here. Usually several families in in the ancient Middle East Several families, whether they lived outside in a village or whatnot, they would come together and share a sheepfold or a sheep pen. And so at night, when the shepherds weren't you know, with their sheep and taking them in and out to, to go feed, they would hire a gatekeeper. And this gatekeeper would keep multiple flocks. So you have this family's sheep and this family's sheep. You have Dave's sheep. You have Craig's sheep. And this gatekeeper would be responsible for protecting them Until Dave or Craig would come out in the morning and and give their call and say, Here, sheepy. Come here, sheepy. And their sheep would come to them. And keep in mind, there were multiple flocks in these sheep pens. And here's what's fascinating. One one commentator notes, One of the most striking characteristics of the shepherd-flock relationship is that control over the flock is exercised simply by the sound of the shepherd's voice or whistle. So, there's multiple sheep in this, there's multiple flocks in this one sheep pen. And the sheep, maybe they're not so dumb because they can actually recognize the shepherd's voice or the shepherd's whistle. So, when Craig calls his sheep, Dave's sheep aren't gonna go to Craig. They don't know Craig. When Dave calls his sheep, they're not gonna go to Craig, they don't know him. You see what's going on here? Jesus says, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. He goes before them. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now, we could spend much time thinking through the details of this, and there's much going on here. But right now, we just need to be aware that this is a striking blow to the Pharisees. You're supposed to be the religious leaders, but the people you're shepherding, they don't know you. You're thieves. You're robbers. And if you were to look back in Ezekiel 34, it's interesting because God actually says this to Ezekiel. He says, Son of man, prophesy against who? The shepherds of Israel. The leaders of Israel. Say to them, You do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound. The strayed you have not brought. And it goes on and on. You've ruled them with harshness. They're scattered. They have become food for all the wild beasts. But Ezekiel 34 isn't all judgment. For God says, I will rescue my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places. I will bring them in. I will be their shepherd. So for us, from the viewpoint of 2,000 years after Jesus, we can look back and, and we can see what, exactly what Jesus was saying. He's saying the true shepherd is here. And as we'll see, Jesus is claiming to be that shepherd, the one who Israel has been waiting for. God will shepherd his people. But of course, verse 6, the Pharisees, the people standing around, the religious leaders they still don't understand what is going on. So let's keep reading. Pick up in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in ...and out and find pasture. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So for the rest of this passage, I want you to keep this in mind. Here's here's the main idea that's going to unfold for the rest of, of this passage. Jesus is the one sent to deliver and bring life to God's people... As the loving and mighty shepherd. Let me say that again. Jesus is the one sent to deliver God's people. He's the one sent to bring salvation and life for God's people. As the loving and mighty shepherd. And so we're just going to walk through this passage and and unpack that statement. So first we see Jesus is the one sent to deliver God's people. We see this open door. This open door. So Jesus claims in verse 7 that he is the door. But I thought Jesus was the shepherd. So what's going on here? We need to understand that when shepherds were traveling away from their uh, permanent sheep pen, they had to make you know, a, a makeshift sheep pen. You're out in the wilderness, you're on a journey, you still got to protect your sheep at night, so they would take some rocks or brush, form an enclosure, and it would keep the sheep in it. But there would still be one opening where the sheep could go out and and come back in. And the shepherd would lay in that opening at night. He didn't take a gate with him. He couldn't hire somebody when he was out. So the shepherd himself would be what? The door. So the shepherd was the door. This should start clicking in our minds and, and begin to make sense. So this shepherd talk is actually... He's the door. He was the only way in and the only way out. And this language of in and out, guiding sheep in and out, actually takes our minds back to a passage in Numbers 27 where God says this. uh, Moses says this. Moses prays. He says, Let the Lord appoint a man over his people, a man who will go out and come in before them, one who shall lead them out and bring them in. Why? Why? so that God's people may not be as a sheep without a shepherd. Can you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, I'm that one who is promised. I'm the one ultimately that Moses was praying for. Jesus is the savior of God's people. He is the one who leads to life. Notice the comparison between Jesus... And these thieves and robbers, thieves and robbers, what's the end result? Destruction, death. What's Jesus leading his people to? Life and life abundantly. Sometimes following Jesus makes sense, right? He said this, so that's what I'm doing. It's clear. We don't even have to contemplate it in our minds. Jesus said this. This is the situation I'm in. I'm doing it. I see life. I see how it makes sense. But sometimes, if we're honest, following Jesus can be difficult, right? Gosh, I, I know he said this, but my situation seems different. Or I'm sure if he was here, he would tell me something else to do. Sometimes following Jesus is difficult. I don't see the life. I don't see how this makes sense. But what we see is that this passage, as we continue on, will actually anchor our trust in the Good Shepherd and our trust in what he has said. So keep in mind, anyone or anything who who makes promises like Jesus is a liar. Jesus is the only one who can give life. Jesus is the only one who can save God's people. And notice, this is very exclusive, right? Jesus says, I'm not a door, I'm not one of the doors, I am the door. And John would say this, maybe even clearer in chapter 14, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. It's exclusive. Jesus is the door. But notice, this door is open, I am the door. If anyone, if anyone, if anyone enters by me, what? They will be saved. So Jesus is the only way to salvation, but the offer, the invitation is wide open to anyone who will come to him. Abundant life, true human flourishing. Content, well-nourished, cared for. This isn't about materialism. Peace with God, knowing the eternal God. Living as God has designed you, as God has made you to live, both now and forever. That's what everybody's seeking. Everybody wants life. Everybody wants true satisfaction. And Jesus reminds us, it's me. I give life. So verses 7 through 10 depict Jesus as the door. And as we go back into verse 11, we see that Jesus is is back to the shepherd. So Jesus is the one sent by God to deliver his people, to give them life. And now we begin to see just how and, and why Jesus does this. So let's pick up in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You may have heard the saying, usually attributed to A.W. Tozer, that the most important thing that comes... How does he say it? By God, uh, Sorry. A.W. Tozer says... That whenever we think of God, whatever first comes into our mind is the most important thing about us. But C.S. Lewis says this. He says, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it's not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. C.S. Lewis disagreed a little bit. So what does God think about us? I asked that at the beginning. What does Jesus really think about you, Christian? What does Jesus really think about me? Is he just putting up with us? Yeah, the Father had this plan. We wanted to save some people. I wasn't really all in, but I agreed. I wanted to make dad happy. Or it was my idea, but the father really wasn't into this whole plan. Or I I saved them. I was all in, but now I see how how your life's unfolding right now. I don't care. Sometimes we would never say that. Sometimes that's how we feel, isn't it? Like God's just putting up with us. And his patience is on thin ice. But what we're about to see is that's not true. It's not true. God, Christian, is not just putting up with you. Whether you consider yourself a great Christian or a semi-Christian or subpar Christian, there's no such thing as a second-class Christian. Look at the loving shepherd. So we see in the open door, and now we see the loving shepherd. Look at verse 12. A hired hand is not a shepherd. A hired hand doesn't own the sheep. In the face of danger, what does the hired hand do? He runs away. After all, he's a hired hand. He just wants his paycheck. I'm not risking my life for those sheep. I don't know those sheep. The hired hand doesn't care for the sheep. But this is in sharp, sharp contrast to Jesus. Verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I'm not a hired hand. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. This is personal to me. I give my sheep life. I'm not a hired hand. This is personal. These sheep are mine. I won't abandon them. When danger comes and everybody else is running away, I'm gonna run into the danger for them. I love them. And it's here where this sheep metaphor goes further than any of us could have fathomed, any of us could have imagined. I lay down my life for the sheep. It's here where we behold some of the most beautiful truths. About Jesus and his relationship to his people. Some of the most beautiful truths about the cross. This loving shepherd. Do you see it? Jesus willingly. Jesus willingly died for his people. Jesus willingly dies for his people. Was the death of Jesus an unexpected tragedy? Was Jesus another religious fanatic who was martyred for his faith? No. Jesus willingly laid down his life. Look at verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So why did Jesus do this? Right? It begs the question, if Jesus willingly gives his life, you may be sitting here thinking, I already know the answer to this. This is basic. Let me remind you and go deeper maybe than what you're even thinking. The answer is, yes, he loves his people. He loves his sheep. He's concerned about them. They know him. He knows him. It's personal. He loves him. But this still doesn't answer the question, why does Jesus willingly give up his life for the sheep? Right? I could stand up here and I could confess and go on and on about how much I love you all. And I do. And how much you all mean to me. And I would do anything for you. Therefore, I will drink this cup of poison. I will willingly die for you all. You could say, wow, that really does prove your love. Your sincerity. But it also proves you're kind of crazy. You're rather insane. Don't do that. So why did Jesus willingly die for his people? There's got to be something else going on. Unless he was crazy. Was he insane? And furthermore, what good is a dead shepherd to sheep? Right? If he willingly gives his life for sheep, how is that going to give this abundant life to sheep? These questions are coming up. How does this make sense? Well, there's something else going on. It's not only that Jesus willingly dies for his people, this loving shepherd, but Jesus sacrificially dies for his people. Did you notice the word for In verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. That word for, every time it's used within the context, uh, within John, it's within the context of sacrifice. Jesus is not arbitrarily drinking a cup of poison and saying, I give my life. He's doing it on behalf of somebody else. This dying that Jesus is saying you do is on behalf of his sheep, on behalf of his people. Look at the contrast. The thieves, for the thieves and the wolves to live, what has to happen? The sheep must die. For the wolves and the thieves and the robbers to get what they want, the sheep must die. They will die. But... For the sheep to live, the shepherd must die. See the contrast Jesus is showing us here? In Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, it's speaking of this day when God would give salvation to his people, the final salvation that he's promising. It's striking because it says that God would actually strike this shepherd, this Messiah. Listen, awake, O sword, God says, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. Our greatest need in this life, as many of you are aware, but some of us are not. Our greatest need in life is to be rescued from Our sin. The world is how it is because we are sinners. There's disunity. There's chaos. There's bitterness. There's murder. You name it. It's because of sin. There's something deeply wrong with us. The Bible describes that as sin. We have rebelled against the God who made us. And that not only severs our relationship with God, but it breaks our relationship with others. We no longer love other people, we hate other people. And the penalty of this sin against this holy God that we just sung about this morning is judgment, is death. But what Jesus does, and what he's alluding to here in these verses, is that he will be our substitute he will take our place. That's why he died. He didn't die because he thought it was a good idea. He died because he stood in our place. This was planned before creation. So Peter says in his sermon of Pentecost, God foreordained this. God planned this. The cross wasn't plan B or C or D or an afterthought. It was intentional and planned by God. And he calls us to to repent. If If this Jesus died for our sins, he loved us, he took our penalty that we deserve. You must repent of your sins and trust him. Cast yourself on this great shepherd, cast yourself on this loving shepherd. He is the loving shepherd. The healed man back in chapter 9, after he was healed, you know what happened to him? The religious leaders, the Pharisees, they kicked him out of the synagogue. What was the synagogue? The synagogue was the place where God's people go worship God. And these religious leaders are saying, you don't belong to God's people. You don't belong here. What does Jesus say? He says, no, you are mine. You belong to God. You're mine. You're my sheep. I gave you sight, I called your name, and you heard me. And this man at the end of chapter 9 is worshiping Jesus as God. Christian, understand, understand the greatness of Christ's love. Paul prays in Ephesians 3, he prays for the church and he says, I pray that you would understand how wide, how long, how high, how deep the love of Christ is for you. Do you pray that, church? Do you wake up in the morning saying, God, I I just want to understand. Paul tells us to pray. He says, pray that you may grasp the depth of Christ's love for you. God, I want to understand this. I want to grasp this. And What this does when you begin to see and understand the depth, the height, the width of Christ's love for you, Christian, Is What does it do? It turns the Christian life and following Jesus, not a mere duty, but sheer joy. Right? We're always coming to the Bible with questions. Do I have to do this or do I not have to do this? Do I have to give or do I not have to give? Do I have to give this much or do I not have to give this much? Do I really have to share the gospel or is that for somebody else to do? But you see, when we start to grasp the love that Jesus has for his people, for you personally, Christian... It begins to ask the question, not why, but why not more? Not why should I give, but why am I not giving more to Jesus? Not do I have to share my faith, but Jesus loves me. Why am I not doing this more? Jesus forgave me so much. He loves me so much. Why am I not forgiving more? We support two missionaries. Why am I not supporting more? We're planning one church, Why why are we not planning more? You see what the love of Jesus does to us? Paul says it compels us. Maybe you're familiar with that old hymn, The King of Love My Shepherd Is. Perverse and foolish, I often strayed, but yet in his love he sought me, and on his shoulder gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me the king of love is our shepherd he is the loving shepherd yet the question remains doesn't it what good is a dead shepherd even the most loving one what good is he if he is dead jesus is the one sent to deliver and bring life to god's people Because he's the loving shepherd, but remember, he's also the mighty shepherd, the powerful shepherd. And So let's look at this. Look at verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. But that's not how the verse ends, is it? It says, I have authority to take it up again. What? What? Jesus came to earth on a mission given to him by the Father. But he also came with authority, with power, with might. Jesus willingly came, placed himself in the most vicious wolf's mouth of sin and death. It was bloody. It was horrific. But it wasn't the end. It wasn't the end. Three days later, after being put to death by Romans, because he willingly went to the cross... the tomb on that Sunday morning began to rattle. And Jesus' body, which died in the place of you, Christian, his heart began to beat. Breath filled his lungs. His authority to take up his life happened. Jesus rose again from the dead. A man, Jesus, rose again from the dead. And you know what that means is that he has defeated sin and death. Death doesn't have authority over him. He has authority over sin and death. And Christian, since you're united to him, death does not have authority over you. Sin does not have authority over you. Yes, we still struggle. We live in a fallen world, don't we? And we'll battle this world until the day Jesus returns and fully restores us. But our great enemy, he's been defeated. The cross wasn't the end. Jesus has authority to lay down his life but then take it up again. By now it should be clear that Jesus is much more than a shepherd who cuddles his little lamb. Maybe you have a picture like that. Nothing against that picture. He's much more than a shepherd who tickles his little lamb's nose and kisses their little face and tells them how cute they are. Jesus is gentle. He's compassionate. He's loving. And I'm so grateful for that. And I trust you are as well. But this loving shepherd is also a king. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is no small shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 15. Remember it gave this judgment on the religious leaders? But then it says this, God says, I myself, God says, I myself will shepherd my sheep. But then, at the end of Ezekiel 34, God says, I will set up over them, my people, one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall be their shepherd." So what's going on at the end of Ezekiel 34? There's salvation promised, And on the one hand, it's saying, God himself, I myself will shepherd my people. On the other hand, God is saying, I will send my servant David to shepherd my people. Now, David's passed away by this time. So he's obviously talking about a descendant of David. But the question remains, is God going to be the shepherd? Or is David going to be the shepherd? Well... Do you know anything about Jesus? The answer is yes. Jesus the great son of David who was the shepherd king. Jesus is both God the shepherd and the son of David the shepherd. He is the royal king. God or David? Yes, Jesus the resurrected shepherd king. Keep in mind the cross is cosmic. Read the book of Ephesians. It says that God is reuniting heaven and earth. Everything that's been undone by the fall, by the curse of sin, God is making new, and that happens through the cross. It's cosmic. Yet at the same time, the cross is deeply personal. It's deeply personal. Jesus is Lord of all, but he's also personal savior. Jesus calls his sheep by name. Verses 14 and 15, you may not be surprised that we were talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago. That's kind of what you expect when you come to church. But you may be surprised that we actually find ourselves in eternity in verses 14 and 15. Lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. How? Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Jesus' love for you, Christian, deeply personal, is grounded in the love that the Father has for the Son. It's grounded in the eternal Father, his love that he has for the eternal Son. Our relationship with Jesus ...is grounded in eternity. You know what that means? Our relationship with Jesus is built for eternity. You ever research how they build skyscrapers? What do they have to do before they start building? They have to dig really, really, really deep. Because what? This building is going to be huge. It's going to be massive. And there's going to be everything. Wind that's going to come and storms are going to batter this. And if there's not a deep foundation... This thing's going to collapse. Well brothers, sisters, your salvation has an eternally deep foundation. It's grounded in the love that the Father has for the Son. His love is leading you to life and life abundantly. So Jesus is the open door, loving shepherd, powerful shepherd. Let me offer two brief reflections. ...that I see from this passage that I think will be helpful for us. First, did you notice that the story isn't over? Verse 16, this metaphor is not over. This was written 2,000 years ago. It was grounded in eternity past. But the story isn't over. Look what Jesus says in verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I have other sheep who are not Israelites... And I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. The sovereign good shepherd is gathering his flock for whom he died. As we read in Revelation 5 from every nation, tribe, people, and language. You know, it's fun to imagine when Jesus said this, he very well may have Pictured you, or you, or you, us, Hamilton Baptist Church, 2,000 years later. They're my sheep. They're not created yet. They don't know me yet, but they're mine. As we read earlier, the Father gave them to me, and I will get them. I will get them. They will hear my voice. Brothers and sisters, this is powerful grace, this is sovereign grace. I wonder this morning, whether you're watching or in here this morning, do you need to trust this shepherd? Do you need to stop trying to earn salvation or whatever you think life is by yourself or some other way? It's only going to leave you with death and destruction. Why not trust this shepherd today? And this, this will motivate our evangelism, won't it? This will motivate our missions, right? You mean to tell me that Jesus is still actively bringing people into his flock? He, he's doing this. His power is doing this. His authority is doing this. His, his voice is doing this. Yes. Well, let's do this. Let's proclaim the gospel to all nations. One day we'll be one united people. Secondly, the story isn't over. Last reflection discern and follow Jesus. Do you remember how this this metaphor began back verses 1 through 6? How did Jesus describe his sheep? You can look back there. He says, I will call them. He says, the sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. You want to know what a Christian is? Look at these verses. Simply put, a Christian is one who listens to Jesus and And follows him. He listens to Jesus. He learns what Jesus teaches. He understands what Jesus says. And he does it. So I wonder. Whose voice have you been listening to recently? Especially in these times of great distress. Whose voice are you listening to? Every morning when you wake up you're bombarded with so many voices each competing for the allegiance of your heart so many voices so many experts whether it's this pandemic we're going through or a personal suffering endeavor that that you're struggling through there's so many voices telling you this and that and Jesus is saying my sheep listen to me are you listening to Jesus? How much time have you spent in God's Word this week compared to listening to other voices? To the news, to social media. And I, I say this graciously, right? To struggle, right? We want to listen to these other voices. They seem closer to us, they seem more relevant sometimes, but they're not. We must discern everything through. Jesus' words. Listen to him. Can you recognize the false calls? Are you familiar with what Jesus says and how he is enough so that when you hear the false voices, you know, that's not Jesus. I'm not going there. I'm not promoting that. One of the beautiful aspects of the church is that God gives us under shepherds. The Bible, we often call them elders or pastors to protect and lead, to help inform, to help guide. It's hard to read this passage without saying, pray, pray for your elders, pray for your pastors. But also keep in mind that shepherding is not merely reserved for elders and pastors. We're all called to care for one another. We're all called to serve one another. Why wouldn't we? Look how much Jesus has loved us. You're telling me that gets to overflow and how I I love others? Yes. Hebrews 10, 25. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but what? Pastors, encourage one another. Elders, do the work. No, everyone, encourage one another. Especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Who are you following? Who are you listening to? I think it's clear from this passage. Jesus is the only one worth listening to. Jesus is the one worth listening following so who is he let's close by reading these final verses 19 through 21 there was a, again a great division among the jews because of these words many of them said he has a demon and is insane why listen to him i love how the gospel ends here right why listen to him seems crazy answer these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? It's as if John's saying, look for yourself. Look for yourself. Who else can open the eyes of the blind? Once you understand who Jesus really is, it will change your life. Both now and for eternity. Friends, behold Jesus, see Jesus, the good shepherd, the one who was sent by God to deliver and lead his people to life, eternal life. He is the loving and mighty powerful shepherd. Let's pray. Our Father, we we thank you for your word, we thank you that it shows us who you are. We thank you, Jesus, for, for willingly laying down your life for your people, for anyone who would come to you. So, Father, as, as your people, as your sheep, would you help us to discern your voice and help us to know to, how to follow you and there are so many other voices out there. Father, we need you. So would you do a great work in us? Would you transform our lives? So that we too may model the good shepherd. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.